Gracious Lord, help us to follow you, especially when we do not know how to. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I hate this parable. Yes, I know that in 2 Timothy we read that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But still, I hate this parable. I mean, seriously, it says, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. That sounds like something from an Enron deposition, not Jesus. This parable does not have a clear meaning, it is confusing, and it just has a general feeling of ickiness. When Jesus tells the parable of the sower and explains that some seeds fall on good soil and others on bad, scripture then records Jesus' explanation of that fairly evident parable. But here in what nearly every scholar and reader of scripture calls the mis most difficult parable there is, we get nothing except for a bunch of one-liners about money tacked onto the end of it. In fact, one Roman emperor who was opposed to Christianity used this parable as evidence that Christians are liars, thieves, and con artists not to be trusted. As will become evidence in this sermon, I am not really sure what the point of this parable is. And I really wish Jesus would have spelled it out a little bit more clearly or used an example that does not seem so, well, unchristian. And that's why I hate this parable. And that's exactly why I need to wrestle with this passage, instead of taking the easier way out of preaching on that balm of Gilead from Jeremiah, or the mediation of Jesus Christ in First Timothy, as tempted as I am to ignore this parable, as most Christians have for 2,000 years. After all, when was the last time you saw a stained glass window dedicated to the dishonest manager? So what might be going on in this parable? Well, to start, we have to locate chapter 16 within the whole of Luke. Chapter 16 comes, not surprisingly, after chapter 15. And Luke 15 includes three parables, two of which we heard last Sunday, the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then we have the parable of the lost son. Now, Luke did not put those chapter divisions there. Those came about a thousand years later. So these parables are all written in a seamless way. As we read today's parable, we should have in mind the idea that God is the one who seeks out the lost, that God is lavish with love and yearns to draw us all together in unity. After this parable, Jesus goes on to tell the Pharisees that to God all hearts are open and all desires are known. And then he tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, a parable about the need to care for the least of these and the very real consequences of neglecting the poor. This parable about the unjust manager is situated between parables of God's lavish love and a parable of judgment about those who are stingy. Now that does not explain what this parable means, but it at least situates this passage in the larger story that Luke is telling. Now it's an interesting narrative, even if it feels more like a mob story than a parable. A rich man had a manager who was lousy at his job. He gets called in for a not so good performance review. 
The manager sees the writing on the wall and decides that time is short to come up with a plan B, as he is too lazy to labor and too proud to beg. So he decides to cook the books, figuring that he needs to create some favors to call in later. So he reduces the amount owed by some of his boss's creditors. Now he's taking a gamble here. His boss can have him jailed for this sort of creative accounting, but that would make his boss look like a fool for letting this crook manage his affairs. Now the boss could also go out and tell everyone, look, I'm sorry, a mistake has been made. You still owe what you owe. But that's not gonna sit well with anyone. Imagine the student loan debt relief that was just announced getting taken back. The boss wants to be seen as generous, not greedy. And what other choice does the manager have? Sure, he knows there are risks, but he figures the risk is better than hard work or begging. Well, the rich man realizes that he's been played, and he praises the shrewdness of the manager. And what makes this parable so difficult is that we don't know where the words of the rich man end and where Jesus picks up his address to the disciples. Scholars are divided as to where this parable ends. Some say the ending is because he had acted shrewdly. Others say it goes through that section about the children of light. Some say it ends with the bit about eternal homes. And so others think that it includes everything that we heard read this morning. And this makes a big difference, doesn't it? If the duped rich man is the one saying, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, well, that's one thing. But if that's the take-home message that Jesus is giving to the disciples, well, that makes a huge difference in how we hear and apply this parable. I have no special insights here. I wish that I knew where the parable ended and the commentary began, but I don't. One theologian has said that this parable has suffered death by a thousand explanations. <laughs> People who read this passage try to explain away all of these difficulties. Some say that the manager is just forgiving his salary that's built into the debt, so he's not really stealing anything. But that's not in the text. Others say the manager is simply forgiving the interest that's owed, and because usury is against the laws of the Old Testament, the manager is actually saving this rich man from getting into trouble. But again, that's putting something in the text that's not there. Still, others say that what is being commended is not the dishonesty, but rather the shrewdness. And those who make this point then go on to say that Jesus is telling his followers to do all they can to spread the kingdom. But I don't buy that one. Because for one, Jesus could have said that plainly without a parable. But what really gives me pause about praising the shrewdness of this weasel of a manager is that word shrewd. The word could also be translated as crafty. And there's a story in Genesis 3 that uses the same word. It begins, now the serpent was more crafty than any other animal. I hardly think that Jesus is telling this parable to lift up the character traits of the serpent. But that leaves me stuck. Is this a counter parable of some sort where Jesus is illustrating the opposite of what we're supposed to do? 
It does say, if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? Maybe Jesus is saying that if we act like the manager, we won't be trusted with anything more. Perhaps, but if that's the point, I think we're missing a couple sentences to connect those ideas. It's no wonder that Matthew, Mark, and John had enough sense not to include this parable in their versions of the gospel. Now, one thing I do know about Jesus and his parables is that Jesus is not interested in giving us an attitude adjustment or telling us moralistic fables. The problem is not that we need to view things from a different perspective and then we will be able to fix everything and bring heaven to earth. No, consistently the parables are the stories of the shocking, transgressive, and scandalous grace of God. I just don't see how this is a parable only told to encourage us to be more creative or generous. This is not a parable told to assure us that the ends justify the means, thereby giving us permission to do unethical things for the sake of some loftier goal. But I'm just left further scratching my head about what is going on. Now, whether it was Jesus or Luke, that put this parable next to some sayings about money, we don't know for sure. But that's the way the Spirit led Luke to remember and record this chapter. Somehow that part about no slave can serve two masters is integral to this parable. Now a better translation would be, no slave is able to be a slave to two masters. And that translation better follows the Greek of Luke. And it makes it clear that what is at stake is not a choice about which masters we will serve. The issue at hand is that we are all enslaved, every single one of us. It's not as if we have a choice to serve or not. We are all captive to something. Saying that we are not bound to anything is like saying that gravity has no pull on us. It's utterly ridiculous. The danger that Jesus is alerting us to is not some choice that is before us. It is not, you can serve God or you can serve wealth, so choose wisely. Not at all. As one of the great prayer books of our, or one of the great prayers of our prayer book tradition puts it, we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Because if it was as easy and as simple as deciding that following Jesus is more important than chasing after money, then at least we would have a shot at doing just that. But that's not the problem. The issue is that we try to do both. When we say that we can be disciples of Jesus, while at the same time worrying about money, we get stuck. The dishonest manager was focused on money, and that led him to follow the example of the serpent in being crafty. That is not a good example for us to follow. Perhaps what Jesus is commending to us is the same idea found in this week's collect. Asking for God's help that while we are placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to, the, to those that shall endure. The only way that I know to make any sense of this parable is through the lens of what we invest in and who we serve. It is stewardship season, but it's always a good reminder that there are two ways that we can relate to money. Either we serve money or it serves us. 
And the way to know if you are in charge of your money or if your money is in charge of you is that you have to be able to give it away. Now, I realize that everyone's situation is unique and different, but if you can come up with more reasons why you should not be expected to give your money away than you can for giving generously, then that's a clear sign that your money is in charge of you. The only way to make it clear that you are not a slave to your money is to give it away. And if you think that St. Luke's is doing the work of God, I would ask you to consider giving 5% to this parish and another 5% to the charities and causes that you are passionate about. Does that mean that money still will not have a pull on you? Absolutely not. We give that much each year, and I still worry about money and wish I had more of it to worry about, which is why I rely on the mercy of God, not on my ability to write a check to save me. But in writing those checks and getting rid of that money, I am attempting to make it clear to myself that money will not be what I invest my life in. And to be clear, I've got more growing to do with this, but I am thankful to have places like St. Luke's, like Episcopal Relief and Development, and Rowan helping ministries to invest in. Is this a parable about what we are invested in? Who knows? But at least as I read it this week, I think Jesus is teaching us to hold fast to God's mercy, grace, and love, which shall endure. Because faith is about our investments. Where do we expect the return of peace, mercy, and salvation to come from? If we think that through our cunning or ingenuity, our good looks, our charm, our wealth, our reputation, our leadership ability, our perseverance that we will obtain, that peace that passes all understanding, then we have been seriously misinformed. If we think that trying our best will keep us from sin, then we will soon learn just how wrong we are. If we expect that our striving will save us from the inevitability of death, then we are mistaken. If we believe that our accomplishments will give us a sense of purpose, then we have become quite good at lying to ourselves. If we invest in worldly goods and currencies, currencies, we will be sorely lost. And being lost is a great place to be when it comes to Jesus, because he seeks out the lost, and through his love goes to all lengths to make sure that we are found. So if, like me, you feel lost in this parable, fear not. Our good shepherd is deeply invested in us and will find us all.